0: Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces, the conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Hot divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 39 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, I'm joined by attorney and National Football League sports agent, Alexa Stabler. Alexa is the founder of Stabler Sports. The last name may very well sound familiar. Alexa is the daughter of the late NFL great and Hall of Fame quarterback, Ken Stabler. Alexa is the Shine On Podcast featured guest this week, and wait until you hear my conversation with her. On this episode, Alexa and I talk about family, and football, the interplay between relationships and sports, what the game of football meant to her and her family, her relationship with her father, and the lessons that she learned both personally and professionally from him about life on and off the field, family, football, hard work, and so much more. And for so many people from youth sports to professional sports, it's more than just a game. Sports, it's the joy, the pleasure The memories created, the lessons learned, the moments at the football game, taking all of it in, the smell of the freshly cut grass, the field, being at the ballpark, the tradition and the history of the game, the bond sports creates between families, parents and children and siblings. And during my conversation with Alexa, we get into this, the sports agency business, how Alexa takes what she learned from her dad and how she applies it. the athletes she works with and represents. We also go around the NFL and get Alexa's take on some of the hot-button issues in the NFL today. And producer Dave, before we get into this incredible conversation with Alexa Stabler, let's get right into the docket.
1: And now, let's see what's on the docket. All right, a trio of news stories today for the docket, Evan. And let's start with one from the Huffington Post. Item Item one from the Huffington post comes a story headline. How soon is too soon to become attached to your new partner's children? Article uses Pete Davidson getting a tattoo of Kim Kardashian's kids names as a perhaps questionable choice. So it's a good question. It's one I think a lot of divorce people deal with. Tell us about your reaction to this um, article and that dynamic.
0: One of the most common phrases you may hear a divorce attorney say is it depends. And that's because so often, it does just depend. In this great article for the Huffington Post, author Brittany Wong asked the question, and Dave, you said it, I'll say it. This is a question that's on the mind of so many divorcing parents who find themselves in new relationships. How soon is too soon? Too soon to become attached to your new partner's children. Now, Brittany gets the experts involved, and we hear co-parenting experts will give their take in response to this often asked question of how soon is too soon. But Dave, as you mentioned, the article talks about, and we see this play out in the celebrity world with Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson, who has apparently been spending time with Kim and Kanye's children. Mm. And of course, Kanye has expressed publicly his displeasure with it. However, this celebrity public drama that's unfolding for the world to see is something that's often played out in everyday life. And it's not easy. Couples and parents in new relationships struggle with it. But here are a few takeaways from the experts mentioned in the article. Communication, it's everything. It is so important. Take it slow, says expert Virginia Gilbert, a Los Angeles-based therapist specializing in high-conflict divorce. Number three, consider the children's feelings and how they may react to the position they may find themselves in if they feel that they're betraying the other parent. And let me add in the legal perspective and a layer to, to it to answer this challenging question from a timing standpoint. The length of divorces, they're increasing. The cases which are being litigated are taking longer and longer to resolve, given the court system. So very often, people will date and find themselves in serious relationships, and let's say a divorce is going on for two, three, or four years, so you have the complexity of the divorce not being finalized with the fact that many people, even though their divorce is not finalized, have moved on.
1: Next item on the docket is an opinion piece coming to us from the Washington Post. <coughs> item item two. two. Headline reads, the conventional wisdom about managing money and marriage is wrong. Finance guru Susie Orman just cited in the article, not the author of it. But apparently Susie is known for her advice that she would never, ever have just one joint account. Says the author in the Washington Post. There's just one problem with that. It's bad relationship advice.
0: Your thoughts on this piece. Bad relationship advice. How about bad legal advice? And first, (laughs) let me say to check out this opinion piece by Elaine Olin in the Washington Post. And look, Dave, sometimes what may make the most sense from a marriage standpoint may not make the most sense from a legal standpoint in the event of a divorce. Now, does that make me a cynic? No. (laughs) Does it make me a realist? Absolutely. And this is where prenups come in and can play an important part of the money conversation early on. But let's talk about the article. The opinion piece mentions an article that was recently published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which found that joint financial resources were more likely to lead to greater relationship stability. People who pulled everything were the most satisfied. People that pulled nothing were the least satisfied. The people who had some type of hybrid where they pulled some of their money were somewhere in the middle on the happiness scale. And this is from Emily Garbinsky, an associate professor at Cornell University's Business School, and who is one of the three authors of the study. And look, I get it. This is the pooling the tips philosophy for restaurants, that everyone works harder and is motivated to do a good job if tips are pooled. But the article, interestingly, talks about the difference in generational views, both towards marriage and money. And this is something we've talked about before in the podcast and the trends that I see specifically with millennials and also as couples age and are living longer views towards money and independence has also changed.
1: Item three on the docket comes from that ever reliable source, page six of The New York Post. (coughs) Item Item three, page six reports that Melissa Gilbert lost her mind after her 2011 divorce from actor Bruce Boxleitner. I love this, Evan. She said that after her divorce, Gilbert, known for her little house on the prairie, of course, she got Botox, she bought a Mustang convertible, and got herself a younger French boyfriend who notably wore a T-shirt that read Snatch to a brunch at her mother's house. Your your thoughts on the woes of Melissa Gilbert following her divorce?
0: Well, Dave, we're going to get into this, and we're also going to get into, you know, what life was like for you if you did anything like this, you know, following (laughs) your divorce. But but first, let's touch on. The article, and let me say, I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of Melissa Gilbert's book. Look, you know, for all the jokes, she opens up and admits that she lost her mind. And trust me, she is not alone. And for Gilbert to be open about this and sharing her story, the truth is it's going to help so many other people. And for Gilbert, it took some time to find love and happiness again following her divorce. And you mentioned some of the things that she did right after she got divorced. And she talks about when she looks back at life and parenting. Right after divorce, she questions now some of the decisions she made at the time. But as she talks about it, this was an experience and a learning one at that. And now she hopes her children have watched her grow and that her experiences have inspired them too. But Dave, let me ask you think back to, you know, right after you went through your divorce, were there t shirts with slogans or <laughs> were there, did you buy a motorcycle? Tell me about yeah. producer Dave in, the, she in got, the days that followed the divorce.
1: She got a pricey Mustang convertible. I got, <laughs> I got a, a used Chevelle cause that was all I could afford. Now, I mean, I mean, I, I the, the thing that I might have in common with uh, Melissa Gilbert and many others is that to be frank, you're a little bit of a mess in the wake of a divorce. And, and as I've said before on this program, mine was on the amicable side, but it was just very sad. It, it really is the death of something. And so I probably was a little, I don't know if irrational, but I definitely did my share of call it partying to try to celebrate freedom. And, but, and maybe some other, a couple other weird stuff. I don't remember what t-shirts I was wearing or, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I tried to focus on the advice I give to people is it, it's okay to be a mess. You're is it's not supposed to be easy. The thing I tried to steer clear of was unnecessary vitriol directed towards my ex peace with my ex as best I could and to keep things as normal as possible for the kids. Even that's a chore. I mean, the, the kids quite possibly are going to be, you know, at the very least, they're unsettled, but you do your best. And so I say, Melissa Gilbert, good on you for admitting all of this because others, I think indeed will learn. And I, yeah, I think the lesson is you're never going to get it perfect because as, as you know, Evan, if divorce were perfect and neat, then you wouldn't be needed as much.
0: <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. But Dave, let me ask you, is there anything is, is, if you look back to the time for you, do you regret, do you wish you did it differently?
1: I, I guess I would have tried to plan ahead a, a little bit better because in the year or so following my divorce, you know, having been so used to to planning for the whole family, I probably could have planned a little better for myself because it, it caused me a little bit of financial strife as many divorced people. I was going to say men, but men and women will experience following a divorce that you've got to rethink your finances. I probably would have tried to get on that a little quicker, but as far as like behavior and I I guess what I would do differently is just remind myself to, to take a breath and to not try to fix everything and make life completely normal right away. Cause you can't, you'll find it in time. That's Great advice. We are up to the portion of the show where Evan gives his thoughts on issues of note surrounding the world of divorce. The question posed today, why women file for divorce more than men? That's the subject of this episode's Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight.
0: And producer Dave, you know I love a good statistic. And so it's no surprise that this article by Katie Bishop makes its way on to this week's episode of The Shine On Podcast as this week's Shine A Spotlight. Check out some of these eye-popping statistics from this article. According to the article, some estimates in the U.S. put the figure of women initiating divorce at 70%, and the 70% number, it skyrockets to about 90% when women are college educated. First, one of the things I love about hosting a podcast and speaking with the incredible lineup of guests is that we see so many of the topics that we have talked about with past Shine On podcast guests come back time and time again in articles, and in what we discuss here in the podcast. So this article touches on the relationship between education and divorce. We spoke about this with UCLA sociology professor Jenny Brand on episode 27. The article also touches on happiness and gender and what marriage may mean and provide to a male versus a female. We talked about this exact thing on episode 23 with Amherst College psychology chair and professor and author. Catherine Sanderson. The article notes a few reasons for why women may be leading the charge to divorce more than men and why the numbers and statistics perhaps shouldn't surprise us. One, economic independence. Two, no-fault divorce. Three, social factors. Divorce is much less taboo than it once was. And the fourth thing, there's a quote from Gilza Fort Martinez, a Florida U.S.-based licensed couples therapist, that talks about emotional intelligence. And she says that emotional intelligence for women is higher than for men. And the fifth factor is that women may be more motivated than men to resolve their marital status. The truth is, whatever the reason may be, this is a statistic that's worth paying attention to and a trend that we're gonna watch going forward. Our featured guest this week on the Shot On podcast is Alexa Stabler. Alexa is an attorney and the founder of Stabler Sports, an NFL sports agency dedicated to the representation of athletes and NFL players. As the daughter of Super Bowl champion, Hall of Fame quarterback, Ken Stabler, Alexa has lived and breathed the game of football since the day she was born. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Alexa about the game of football, the impact of growing up in the game, what it had on her life personally and professionally, family, football, and the lessons that she learned from her father. We're also going to go around the NFL with Alexa and talk about the game of football today and the ways in which the game has evolved since her father played in the National Football League. Alexa, it's great to have you with us on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Alexa, there's a lot I want to get into. Your sports agency, your career, the impact the game of football had on you and your family but first, I want to talk about the relationship between sports and family, the impact sports in the NFL has had on your life, both personally and professionally. To start, what was it like to grow up literally in the game with a father who played in the NFL and who was an NFL Hall of Famer and an all-time football great? My dad
2: had a really great career in football, and it's fortunate enough to be enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But- I always tell people he was really a hall of fame father. He was so lucky to have a, a really involved and loving and affectionate dad who I never once signed, uh, request for an autograph or some time or you know to toss a football with a kid uh, on campus at Alabama. I think it would be natural to want son or sons being a professional football player. That was never. Uh, I never felt that way. I don't think either of my sisters felt that way. The topic of being a woman and, and maybe the limitations involved in that was never even addressed. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I think it helped set me on the path that I'm on today.
0: And Alexa, we're going to talk about your agency and your career and the impact your dad had on your professional life. But, but tell us about Football Sundays growing up in your household and then also, what does Football Sunday look like for you today?
2: Sure. So growing up, honestly, Saturday was the big football day for us because after my dad retired from the NFL, which, you know, of course, Sunday was a work day, he would stay really involved in broadcasting and and being a color analyst for the University of Alabama uh, football program. So weekends were often spent in Tuscaloosa or maybe on a, a campus where an away game was played and in the press box with my dad and my little sister kind of running around and learning football and meeting the players and the coaches and everyone involved in a big football program like Alabama. And then Sunday, you know, back at home, is just, you know, he was just like any other fan just on from, you know, the early games all the way through the, the primetime game.
0: Now, when you would watch a game with him, take us into that moment. Was he giving you sort of the play by play, you know, given getting into broadcasting was he giving you sort of the perspective from the quarterback position. Was he giving you the perspective of just him being dad?
2: The latter, just being dad. I mean, I, I, I think he, as much knowledge as he had to share, and I, I wish I would have gathered more of it and asked more questions now that he's not here with us, but he was just dad, honestly. Like, do you need a snack? What do you need to do for <laughs> school tomorrow? Like, cleaning up after us. I mean, very much, he was he was almost like, I guess, traditionally, maybe what you would think a mom would be doing. He was both <laughs> mom and dad in the best way possible. And he, he didn't operate under the pretense that either of his little girls wanted to sit there and, and learn how to design an offense. Again, now I kind of wish I could, um, but that's, that wasn't my reality.
0: And so for the average whether it's the football fan on Saturdays, or we're going to talk about University of Alabama and really legacy of football down south, specifically in Alabama in a bit. But what was it like with your dad Monday to Friday? You know, the average football fan knows and sees the player on football Saturdays or football Sundays, and we see players on TV. But take us into the Monday through Friday when your dad is at home with you, what does that look like, separate and apart from what the average fan, you know, may, may, may see on a football Saturday or Sunday?
2: Sure. So I know you're a family law attorney, right? So I am. Yes, I grew up when my parents were not together. So my dad, to, to kind of illustrate his devotion to family, was living in the city where I live now, Mobile, wow. Alabama. And I grew up about an hour away on the beach in Orange Beach, Alabama. And every morning, Monday through Friday, he would get up and drive the hour to the beach, pick up my sister and me and drive us to school 20 minutes back the other way. And they go back to Mobile. And then oftentimes, you know, if we didn't have practice or some kind of after-school activity, come pick us up again. I mean, it was super, he was super, super involved. Um, you know, I think. Football afforded him the opportunity where he had that kind of flexibility after he retired. Monday through Friday was kind of up to him. And, you know, I was uh, a cheerleader in, in high school and he was always at the games. And, of course, people are wanting to talk to him about what's going on on the field or talk about Alabama football or the NFL. And, again, always accommodating, super kind, but honestly just there to to watch his daughter be a cheerleader, which now I'm a parent and I'm like, It can't be that riveting (laughs) or exciting, but that's just what you do. You just, you show up for your kids and and that's what he did.
0: So what was that like for you in terms of the distance geographically between your father, your mother, and really the going back and forth?
2: Yeah. So I grew up in Orange Beach, Alabama, right on the border of Florida on the Gulf Coast. And then he had a home here in Mobile where I live, roughly an hour away. Um, And we just... There wasn't any kind of rigid schedule or anything like that. Just kind of made it work, um, for lack of a better term. But I always remember my dad being present and happy and wanting to do everything he could to help his daughters uh, be happy and successful and fulfilled. I mean, I, I had, I think, what a lot of people um, unfortunately won't have. And it's something I'm forever grateful for, which was a really strong Relationship with my father, and and I now see. I'm I'm coming to learn. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand, but the the impact um, that it had on me and and who I've become today. but continue to, you know, to evolve to be.
0: It's it's fantastic to hear. And it's often said that there's the family that an NFL player has at home, and then there is the football family, the (laughs) football family that a player has on the field, in the trenches battling on the football field, the coaches, the the other players, tell us about that bond that the player has out of the home with his football family. And was it ever hard sharing your dad with this other football family, the football family that he played with on Sundays and practiced with day in and day out?
2: So, I always my, my dad lost his dad very young, and so I, I heard him refer to Coach Bryant or Bryant's coach at Alabama as a father figure. I unfortunately never got to meet Coach Bryant, he passed away before I was born, but I don't hesitate to say that his guidance and his influence. Was a major factor in my dad's uh, football success, and then with respect to the NFL, after after the NFL, my dad moved back home to Alabama, and his his. The large portion of his career was spent playing for Oakland out in California, so truly the opposite end of the country. So I didn't get to see them as much. But I will say that after my dad passed away, many of his former teammates wrapped us up in love and support. Cliff Branch, who will be enshrined in the football Hall of Fame this summer, you know, we would text almost daily. He would send me birthday presents, um, kind of tried to step in there where he could and when he could. The same with Willie Brown, who we recently lost. So, you know, football is family is, you know, sometimes maybe a cliche saying, but at times it's very true. And and I have firsthand experience with
0: that. Well, so you, your father was inducted into the hall of fame in 2016. What was that moment like for you, your family, your siblings when your dad was inducted into the hall of fame in Canton, Ohio?
2: The word that comes to mind is very sweet. I I'm so happy he's there, and that's not something that can be taken away, and I have a son now, and um, I hope in in August, this year's enshrinement, I can take him up there, and he can see his grandfather there. In the moment, it was overwhelming because he had died roughly one year prior to the enshrinement, so it was still very fresh and raw and emotional. Perhaps the hardest part for me was the, the notion that, that not getting to hear him give his enshrinement speech, those are always really touching and unique, and you, you get a, a flavor of the, the player's personality, and sometimes they're funny, and sometimes they're emotional, and I just really wish I would have had the opportunity to hear my dad give his own speech. But one memory that sticks out as um, particularly meaningful for me was during Brett Favre's enshrinement, he was in the same class as my dad, you know, obviously everyone was anticipating his speech myself included and he referenced my dad of being a little kid they're both from um, from the south Mississippi and Alabama and him going and and seeing my dad play a game and he said something to the effect that I don't remember the exact words but you know he seeing my dad wanting knowing that that's what he wanted to do wanted to play like that of course when he went on to have a remarkable career and so just for him and perhaps, you know, one of the biggest stages of his life for him to reference. My dad meant a lot to me.
0: Absolutely. And, and your father's legacy will, you know, continue to go on. And that's an incredibly powerful moment, you know, that you just talked about. What are the lessons that you learned from your father about life, about football and family?
2: The first thing that comes to mind is how you treat people. My dad was you know, the, the epitome of the golden rule. You treat people how you want to be treated. He never sat me down and said, this, this is how you, you act around people and this is how you respond to people. But I think now as a parent myself, perhaps the, the biggest impact you can have is to set an example for your children. That's what I try to do. And, and I don't know if he did it consciously or if that's just who he was at his core, but he treated everyone from, you know, the people in the grocery store, the checkout clerk, to, you know, Coach Saban in Alabama, to, you know, the NFL executives, to his friends and family with so much kindness and generosity of time and compassion and a true interest in in who they were, what they were doing. And so I think that's probably um, had the biggest impact on me. And then the other, the other stuff is, is probably subconsciously, you know, he showed me, what football means and the impacts it can have on its players and their families, good and bad. It afforded him a life. He, he otherwise almost assuredly wouldn't have never had. He came from very humble roots in Alabama and opened up a world of opportunities to him and, and relationships that are were tremendously valuable. And, you know, I've, I've benefited immensely from that, but I also saw the downside of football. His body broke down. He was diagnosed with CTE after he passed away, degenerative brain disease to so literally his body and mind suffered um, a lot because of football. And that's, that's partially why I do what I do today.
0: Now, Alexa, before we turn attention to, to your agency and your f- philosophy and, 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 you know, your thoughts in terms of representing players, what is it about sports? What is it about the game of football in particular that creates this family bond, this tradition, th- th- this feeling, whether it's football Saturdays? on the college level, or football Sundays, that sports, it's tradition, it's family, unites us, parent and child, siblings. What is it about the game? I think there's a lot to that
2: question, particularly now, I think it's important. There's of course so much division in our country on many levels. And and as you say, football does unite us, sports unite us, but my life is football centered. And if you go to an Alabama game or an NFL game, you see people from all walks of life that probably lie on varying sides and ends of all kinds of spectrums, political spectrum, religious spectrum. Everybody looks different, all ages, races, but we're able to unite behind this game that I love to watch and, and work in. You know, that said, I also struggle with it because it is violent and there are very real effects to the athletes and that, you know, I think you can be a purist and say, I'm not going to involve myself in this game that caused my dad to, you know, not be able to really attend football games in the later part of his life because he was in so much pain. I prefer to take the approach that, you know, I understand those effects because I saw someone I love have to deal with them. So I think I'm in a good position to help guide um, the athletes towards um, making decisions that can perhaps mitigate some of those risks. But ultimately, yes. Football is a uniting force. Um, It remains immensely popular. And I I mean, personally, I can't love until my son is old enough to to take to a football
0: game. And Alexa, you started your own sports agency, Stable Sports, and having grown up in the NFL world to now pursue a career in the game that meant so much to you and your family, this has to be pretty incredible. So take us through that journey to becoming an NFL agent, what inspired you to take that leap. And start your own agency.
2: I never thought I would work in sports. I didn't grow up um, thinking oh, I want to work in a football front office or for a college athletic department. I found my, uh, graduated from Alabama, found myself in law school, um, finished law school, started practicing law. And then my dad was diagnosed with cancer in 2015. It was a late diagnosis. Five months later, he passed away. So it all happened very quickly. Then roughly one year later, he was selected to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame and the responsibility for that enshrinement, the, the parties and the events and all of the, you know, in you know, events and the symbols of, of being enshrined kind of fell on uh, my sisters and me, which is a great responsibility. And, and as I was there, of course, you see all these greats that the Hall of Famers are still living and come back to Canton. Some of them are in rough shape. Some of them are in wheelchairs. Some of them are difficult to have a conversation with because of mental struggles. Some of them are not there because of health concerns. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, it's not just my dad. A lot of these guys are struggling. I have a lifetime of knowledge and experience witnessing these effects firsthand. Law school training me to be an advocate about my clients, of course, to contract classes, practice in a business law firm you know maybe I'm suited I'm in a a good position to work on behalf of these players I saw my dad make a lot of decisions that now as an adult I look back on and think wow what was he thinking and of course he was an adult and the responsibility for those ultimately lie with him but I also think wow if he would have had counsel from someone who maybe had a different motivating factor or approach to this, or maybe took more of a long-term view, some things could have worked out differently. So I just kind of on a whim decided I'm going to sit for the agent exam. The NFL Players Association administers an exam every summer to certify its agents. So I started studying and went to D.C. and was lucky enough to pass and really wanted to go at it on my own. My dad, I think, is kind of regarded as a I don't know, a little bit of a renegade player or rebel, and maybe have a little bit of fun. <laughs> let me see, let me see if I can do this on my own. And it's a really tough industry, uh, but so are a lot of industries, and I want to do it. And let's see. And that was in 2017, and it's it has been incredibly difficult, but also incredibly rewarding. I love working with my players. I just got back from a game this. Um, the spring football game yesterday and here I am trucking along still recruiting guys and come on give me a shot I understand this game I promise you and more importantly I understand what comes after and I, it's hard to explain sometimes to someone who's maybe 20 or 21 but you know I think my message resonates with some players and I have no
0: intention of stopping. Alexa that's fantastic you mentioned physical health and mental health of the NFL players that's in many ways the, the, the part of the NFL player's journey that doesn't get enough attention. Doesn't you don't hear about it until you mentioned you know being in camp, didn't seeing the players come back with certain physical ailments, and now you're reading about the mental health struggles of so many athletes in all sports. What more could be done at the NFL level, at the agency side of the practice, whether it's education programs to really support players, their families, not only on the physical side of, of sports, but the mental health side?
2: First, I think certainly since my dad played, things have come a long way. Those, those type of issues, to my knowledge, were never even acknowledged. Back then, at least today, there is more awareness, and I think continued awareness and time are, are probably what will will be most effective. The, the game of football is so violent, and it's a culture of, um, you know, you don't show weakness and Players play through injury all the time and their jobs in the NFL are so tenuous that they don't want to miss time and they don't want to say, you know, "Mm, maybe this is serious. Um, I just need to push through. And so I can keep my job because of course there are the stars in the NFL, but the vast majority of NFL players are fighting every week to keep their job. And there is no, again, for the vast majority, there is no such thing as job security. So what I try to do, and you know, I'm one person, but I, I think all of it, you know, collectively, if we all take the approach of it's okay to talk about mental health struggles, it's okay to seek treatment, it is okay... There, to to lessen the stigma of of mental health, to expect that NFL players, who again have their job security and whose bodies get beat down every week, to not have mental health issues is, I think, unreasonable. And so, and and uh, another thing, I think. Uh, that could have a meaningful impact is for the NFL to recognize um, the benefits of marijuana. It's legal in a lot of states right now, but still NFL players. They have reduced the amount of testing that the players go through for for marijuana screening, but I have seen it have an effect in a positive way on both my dad and um, on fresh other professional athletes. That's just I think it's, it's a complex problem, it's a complex issue, but I think acknowledging alternative therapies and combined with increased dialogue and, and acceptance and time will maybe get us there.
0: And Alexa, you mentioned sort of the grind of being an NFL agent. Recruiting players, keeping players. It's a lot different than Jerry Maguire. So give us an inside look into... Sort of the day, day in, day out journey for you, the recruiting the players, the keeping the players, just everything that goes into the work that you do and sort of the landscape of the sports agency business today. It's
2: tremendously difficult. I think there's a lot of consolidation in the industry, meaning the big agencies, of course, are in competition with one another, but are able to get for the most part, the the higher round draft picks. For me, of course, I would love to have a first round pick. That's natural. Though I will say I am more motivated by connecting with players who my message resonates with and that I can form a long-term relationship with. Recruiting is at the the heart of this business, like many businesses. And so what I try to do is identify at the outset, maybe around this time of year, a list of players that I think may be a good fit. And sometimes that is simply scrolling through social media and seeing, getting a vibe for their personality and maybe could we work together and then reaching out and trying to build on that relationship and seeing if in fact, there is a connection there. When is this somebody that um, I vibe with and that that vibes with me and knowing all the while, of course, that they have other agents reaching out to them and throwing it, you know, the, the idea of incentives to sign with them their way. And then, So that kind of continues through the season. And then I hope to sign, you know, one or two players per draft. It is, it's just me, right? So I, I am very conscious about the fact that I don't need to spread myself too thin. I think that, I think some agents play the numbers game, sign a bunch of players, hope somebody sticks in the league and, you know, onto the next. I try to take a more, I don't know, thoughtful approach to that. I have learned lessons along the way in terms of signing players whose athletic ability was there, but then learning later that. Our relationship was not one that was meant to be for the long term. But yeah, in short, it's it's a tough business. I love it. I believe in what I'm doing, and yeah, it's just what I do day to day is largely dependent on the time of
0: year, though. Sure. And Alexa, the the, the sports agency business, it was predominantly a male dominated industry over the years. What was it like for you, given that culture, to break into the field to start your agency in 2017? Did you face any pushback in the industry from other agents? What was that like?
2: I've had a largely positive experience. I would think that or I would say that my biggest hurdle is not being a woman but size, being independent. You know, a lot of players, a lot of athletes, I'm sure across all sports, but again, I work in football. The primary support in their life has been a woman, whether that was their mom or their grandmother or their aunt or their sister. I've also had a lot of players who either didn't have a father in their life or whose father was in and out of their lives or for whatever reason they are more trusting of or have had a strong relationship with a woman. And so that works in my favor. I don't look at being a woman as a detriment. I think, in fact, it's been a positive. I think that my players are sometimes more willing to be open and honest with me because there's this, not the necessarily the male or male ego situation going on. It, it, it's been, I'm able to connect with the, the mothers and the wives and the girlfriends, I think on a certain level, that sure. um, maybe a male agent can't. And then with respect to within the industry, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Perhaps there's been, you know, talk behind my back or something, but I, you know, whatever. I mean, I have agent friends, men, male and female, that I feel like I can call on and ask for advice. And so um, I'm happy to say overall, it's been, it's been
0: great. Alexa, you mentioned a few times sort of the, the physical nature of football, the violent nature of the game. The game of football is short-lived for many. I think the NFL, the shelf life for a player might be somewhere between three and, and four years. And one day athletes step into the game and there's money and there's fame and there's fortune and there's the spotlight and it can all be over in the blink of an eye. So when you recruit players, and you meant, mentioned finding a match, people who share a similar mindset for you, what is your approach in terms of preparing clients, athletes that you work with, their families for life off the field?
2: Yeah. So I think whenever a player is reported that a player is drafted or signs an NFL contract, people, a lot of people turn and say, oh, he's rich. He has all this money now. And perhaps, you know, if you're drafted in a certain position, that's true. But for a lot of players, that's not true. What I like to tell the players is, and sometimes they listen to sometimes they don't, but it's, <laughs> blame everything on me. If somebody wants something from you or says invest in my project or, Hey man, I need a loan or whatever. If at all possible, direct them to me so I can be the no person. I am happy and sometimes enjoy being the no person because I saw my dad get taken advantage of so many times. And I don't handle players' money. I have no access to their money. I, for the most part, advise them to get a financial advisor that helps them manage their money. But in terms of being a go-between or a barrier, I like to act in that role because I have seen what can happen when there isn't that person. And then social media is also something that has to be addressed. My dad's probably lucky that social media didn't exist when he was playing, but I've also had situations where a team has dug up a year's old tweet from a player that was you know, ill-advised and probably as a result of being you know, 16 or 17 years old and immature and
0: you know, and well, I see another GM's asking them about it on draft day
2: exactly. And it, with respect to the NFL draft, there is a huge variance. If your draft stock slides, that's a big difference in the money that you're going to get, and you know, that's. That's what they're, do- they're They've played all these years and finally they're going to get paid. So to, to, for something like that to be jeopardized over social media it's something that's relatively easily avoided but it, it, and easily taken care of. But every year, every year there are players where something surfaces from their social media that costs them a lot of money. So that's certainly something we have to address as well.
0: And Alexi, you're also a trademark attorney. And there's been so much talk about name, image, and likeness for college athletes And especially being in Alabama with the Alabama college football program, what it is, well, first, is this long overdue? And second, do you have any concerns that college football players are going to look to transfer to schools such as Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, Clemson, the list goes on and on because of the opportunities that those schools may provide?
2: This is long overdue. For decades, everyone has made money on these players, but these players, I understand they're getting a college education. That said, I have worked with players who literally cannot go home during the week because they don't have a car to drive home in. Their family is living in very rough conditions, and but the school is selling their jersey in the bookstore. I understand the arguments be made on the other side. You know, it's not convincing to me, but I think it's long overdue. That said, I also think the situation is ripe for players to be taking advantage of. With respect to the transfer concerns, I think what we need is some uniformity. Right now, there's it's just kind of a hodgepodge. The states, you know, last summer were kind of racing to get something on the books so that the schools could remain competitive with respect to recruiting. So it's a wild, wild rest right now. We don't see the long-term effects of any it. We haven't seen long-term effects of any of this yet. Um, in short, I think it's a good thing. Nothing's perfect. I think with some uniformity and some regulation, we'll be moving in the right direction. I think, you know, I kind of think of it as akin to the agent process. My, my dad was playing. Anyone could call themselves an agent, represent the player. And I think there are horror stories as a result of that.
0: And now oh, you hear about it, you hear about it in the news. And again, you have a few agents who are financial advisors and sort of gives that cloud of negativity across the agency, you know, business. And I would imagine it's sort of the same thing and with name, image and likeness.
2: Yeah, totally. I think you've got, you know, boosters trying to slide some money this way and creating a business opportunity, how even if it's a questionable validity for players. But I think with some regulation, ultimately, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Again, it's another thing that's just going to take some time.
0: Alexa, let's talk legacy. Starting with the University of Alabama. You went to law school at the University of Alabama. Your father was a player at the University of Alabama. You mentioned... Coach Barrett Bryant, you mentioned Nick Sabin, Your agency is in Alabama. What does the University of Alabama mean to you?
2: That's a tough question because it's so much. of my, my earliest memories in life or place on campus at games. I remember being little and all I wanted to do was go see the cheerleaders and go see Big Al, the mascot. And I remember riding in the homecoming parade with my dad when it came time to go to college I had big aspirations that I was gonna to move to New York City where you're based, right? Okay. <laughs> and <hot> go <laughs> big city and big apple a push came to shove. I only applied to the University of Alabama. Went to the University of Alabama. <laughs> at my now husband, when I was a freshman at Alabama, we dated all four years, decided to go to law school together in Tuscaloosa, graduated. Several years later, got married in Tuscaloosa. So, it, <laughs> my mother-in-law is a professor in Alabama.
0: So, it, I think needless to say, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa has had a pretty, pretty meaningful impact in your life. So,
2: it, you know, I I love taking my son like 14 months old, but he's already been up there and I can't wait until he's old enough to really understand the culture of football and to go to the Bryant museum and see all the relics and artifacts of the history of the program. So it's, I mean, it's, it's one of, I think our country's greatest uh, sports programs. And it's had a huge impact on me, even though I'm a woman and, you know, I've never even played football.
0: You mentioned your son, 14 months. Congratulations. Tell us, have you already seen the impact of sports and football in your household? You mentioned your husband, who you met at the University of Alabama. So whether it was with him before you had your son or now having the son, all the things I know you talked about that you're looking forward to doing, but whether it's from your father or just being down South where football is a way of life and it's tradition, have you seen in terms of your parenting style and approach and sort of the blending of two things you love, Parenting and and football. Have you seen sort of the combination of those two already?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my son is um, named James Kenneth. He goes by JK. But- Kenneth, of course, after my dad. And, you know, sometimes I'll share a photo of him whenever on social media and I'll have Raiders fans reach out to me and say, is he left-handed? And I'm like, <laughs> he's a, he's an infant. I, I don't know. I mean, we can hope I'm left-handed. Maybe he got it. Uh, maybe it's passed down, but uh, you know, TBD, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, already it was really special. We, we took him, JK to Denny Chimes, uh, the bell tower at, at Alabama and, my dad's handprints are, are cemented there. He was a team captain. So, you know, getting to put his little tiny hand and my dad's handprints, stuff like that is really, really cool. He's yet to go to a game. He was kind of a COVID baby. So that's all in the future. And then, of course, you know, here in a few months, I really wanted to take him to Canton and, and get to see, you know, where his grandfather essentially lives now.
0: That That's absolutely incredible. And that had to be such a special moment for you. Alexa, everyone hears about the tradition of sports in the South, right? You mentioned I'm in New York and look, New York is not a, a, a hotbed for college football, but we all hear about the tradition of down South and in different parts of the country, Alabama tradition, history. What's that like when someone from the Northeast or a different area of the country hears about sort of football is life, college Saturdays, NFL Sundays.
2: It's true. I don't think that that is kind of in in any way an overblown stereotype. Saturdays do revolve around football in the fall. People very, very rarely schedule weddings on Saturdays in the fall because they know that one, either the guests are not going to come, or two, if they do come, they're going to be staring at their phone the whole time looking <laughs> for, for game updates. Or three, if they just insist, then a lot of times they will have the game on at the reception so that you can keep up. They're just going to acknowledge the inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it truly is everything. I mean, 100,000 people can... Phil Bryant Denny and it generally is full and it, it is an electrifying atmosphere you know I think people dig on the south a lot of times whether you know warranted or not and so we take a lot of pride in our football we Alabama is consistently very successful in football and we can honestly say we're the best at something you know Alabama doesn't doesn't <laughs> find itself at the top of many lists but for football we do and that's why it's one of the reasons I wanted to stay here and open a- an agency there's Immense talent that comes out of this state, and the big agencies are in the big cities. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe these guys would like to have somebody who knows what it's like to live here, grow up here, come back here. I hope you know the players come back here when they're done and invest back in the state that has invested in them. So you know, people can dig on the South all they want, and and I agree with a lot of it. To be fair, but there is something very very special about our our sports and specifically football culture.
0: I was at the stadium, I think, about eight years ago, University of Florida, University of Alabama game in Tuscaloosa. Absolutely incredible experience. I think it was a Saturday night, eight o'clock start. And I mean, the 100,000 fans, the energy that I saw was absolutely incredible. Alexa, let's talk about another legacy. John Madden passed away 2021. I mean, the loss to the sport. he, He was in many ways bigger than life. Incredible coach a broadcast legend, what was the, and I know your father played under Coach Madden and we talked about that. What was the impact of John Madden to the game of football and football and in life? Yeah,
2: I can speak um, to that through the lens of my dad. Um, my dad would not have had the career, I feel confident saying that he had without Coach Madden. I think coach Madden gave my dad the Liberty and the reins sometimes when other, you know, other coaches may not have considering some of the decisions he, he made. And that has, you know, I have benefited tremendously from that. The players that I work with now, they, they all know Madden because of the video game. I mean, sure. That alone is a huge part of his legacy. I mean, he, he lending his name to that and being involved in the development and distribution of that game revolutionized pop culture. I mean, I mean, there, there's hard, it's hard to find, right, a, a kid that hasn't played Madden or his best friend is obsessed with Madden. And then it, on an individual level, he was always very kind um, and gracious to me. He had wonderful words to say about my dad when my dad passed away. He was my dad's inductor into the Hall of Fame and was so kind to to lend his time and, and name to that. Losing him, it, it's hard to... Put into words we lost we lost a lot of great football icons specifically from the Raider family in the past couple of years but again you know he'll live he'll live on forever um, in Canton along with the other hall of famers so you know I'm sure there's a lot that I'm missing because I didn't know him well on a personal level but I can say he had a tremendous impact on my life and absolutely my dad's life because of the amazing um, person and coach and, and business person that he was
0: Alex, as we finish up on on the podcast, let's take a quick trip around the NFL. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of of issues. We talked about the physical nature of the game. Let's talk concussions and the safety of, of players. As you look back to when your father played in the game today, where do things stand in terms of whether it's player safety or really a focus on keeping players safe? Because we've seen some of the game's top players walk away from the game to pursue life off the field, sort of in their the peak of their career?
2: So I work in football, but I don't even know if I will allow my son to play contact football. Certainly, you know, as a child, I would struggle with that decision. Um, so I absolutely respect the decision to walk away from football in, in a sense. I kind of wish my dad would have done the same because of the struggles that he dealt with, certainly in the later part of life. I think that there, I'm very proud of, the NFLPA, I think that they advocate well on behalf of the players with player safety a top of mind. There have certainly been rule changes that I think make the game safer, certainly at the quarterback position. That said, there's a long way to go. It's hard because, you know, I think they're modern day gladiators, right? I think one of the one of the reasons people love to watch football, so which is because of the violence and the hard hitting. And I don't know what that says about us as humans, But I think that that is true. So I don't think that it's ever going to be perfect. And I do think that if my dad were here today, you'd say I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. And I still think that a lot of young men dream one day of playing in the NFL, despite all of this knowledge that's out there. And the the money makes it all that more appealing. And so maybe that's how we justify it. These guys are making a ton of money, so is that the trade-off that you make? And, And I don't purport to have all of the right answers, but I do know that player safety is extremely important to me. I encourage my players to be open and honest with me about what's going on with them physically, because if I don't know, how can I help them in the moment and in the future? But I think, so I think, yeah, I think ultimately encouraging the players to, speak out about what's going on, being open and honest, and then at a you know more institutional level, respecting those decisions and, and hopefully cultivating a culture where they don't have to worry about, well, if I do miss time, is my job on the line.
0: And Alexa, you mentioned money. So let's talk salaries in the NFL for a moment. We saw an offseason for the ages where at the quarterback position in particular, there was so much movement from star quarterbacks, whether it's Russell Wilson to other quarterbacks who were at playing for organizations for some time. They left wide receivers, the wide receiver market. You're seeing salaries, 25, $28 million per year for contracts. And it's a lot different than it was 30, 40 years ago, where players would play for one team, 10, 15 years. As you look at the the landscape of the NFL today, in terms of the players in the movement, what do you see in terms of, the trend going forward. And also from the agent perspective, there is essentially no offseason. season. You have the regular season and the playoffs, and then you have draft day and, and sort of the free agency market. What's it like on the agency side as well?
2: With respect to player movement, you know, I think of course, free agency was a hard battle to even get there. And so I think it's highly individualized. Of course, money plays into the calculation, but think you can't overlook team fit and culture and where player feels he has an opportunity to truly make an impact and to truly succeed so with respect to movement look the team sides they don't have much loyalty to players they burn (laughs) burn their rosters all day every day so I don't don't think you can expect a player to say you know to have to reciprocate where there is no reciprocation right if they see the locker room, the faces in the locker room changing all day, every day. Well, you know why? I understand wanting to be loyal to your team, teammates, and the, the fans, and everything. But you know, with respect to, to movement, I understand and, and support it. And with respect to the salaries, you know, of course, I'm an agent, super biased. The the CBA is structured so that the players get a, a very good share of the revenues. Of course, I'm always in favor of the players having more. They're bearing the brunt of this very risky sport where it's not a matter of if but when you're going to be injured so yeah i mean um the salaries it's not like this money is just made up that the, the TV contracts command this money. It's really us as fans and viewers that are driving these salaries. If we don't tune in, the league can't command these billions of dollars for TV contracts and the players don't make that much money. You know, that said, I think people don't have 10 generally to have a lot of sympathy for players because of the figures they see reported in the media. But at, Again, it's a league of, for lack of a better term, have and have nots. The vast majority of players are not making these salaries that you see the quarterbacks playing for, and and as you um, alluded to, they have very short careers for the most part. And and often when that career wraps up, it's like very stark and abrupt end. And the question of what next is. Blooming and can often be a very difficult transition yeah so that you know my heart is with the players and whatever is in their best interests it, it, is the it's what's important to me because to see the impact the game has on them and their families.
0: Alexa this was absolutely fantastic I want to thank you for coming on the Shining Podcast it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Episode 39 what a show. Alexa Stabler. Wow. Was she fantastic or what? I couldn't get enough. Tremendous spot with her. Listening to her talk about her relationship with her father, the lessons that she learned about life on and off the field, and what the game of football meant to her and her family. Producer Dave, how great was that spot?
1: Fantastic. I felt like we could have gone with her a couple more hours. Just a great, great mix of business, sports, memory of her father. All great.
0: And Dave, thank you to you and the Boston Podcast Network. And thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, the Shine On Podcast YouTube channel and Pond617. Follow the podcast. Send in your comments and questions to Evan at com, And follow me on social media for the latest content. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.